One of the common themes of the Old Testament prophets was the picture of the refiner's fire. The refiner's fire was a beautiful illustration for how God uses the affliction, the pressures, the persecutions in our lives to form in us the endurance, the hope, the strength to follow God in all things. Pressure in our lives, affliction in our lives is not allowed by God to destroy you, but for your blessing and for his glory that you will become stronger in him. What is the refiner's fire? It is the place where gold and silver were taken by uh, taken by the person purifying them, and it was heated up many times over. And each time it was heated to the melting point, more impurities would rise to the surface. And those impurities would be removed. And as the impurities are removed, the gold becomes purer and purer, and therefore more valuable. But also, interestingly enough, as gold and silver have more things removed from them that become pure and pure, they also become more pliable. Did you know that? It, becomes, it actually becomes softer and it becomes more pliable the purer it is. And isn't that a perfect picture of what God wants for our hearts, friends? He wants our hearts to be pliable and flexible, movable by the Holy Spirit. Of course, you know there's another side to the refiner's fire, and that is sometimes you need to strengthen something for its purpose. And gold is oftentimes strengthened with other metals that are melted together, and it makes an alloy, which makes then the gold or the silver stronger and hold together for another purpose as well. And I, I think about the fact that sometimes God brings us to the melting point and brings things into our lives that make us stronger and able to serve him in a special way. The Bible warns us against having a hardened heart and blesses the heart that's pure and is undivided towards him. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. In Luke 18, we encounter Jesus with his disciples making a final trip to Jerusalem it is there that he will complete his earthly ministry with being crucified and then resurrected. And along the path, Jesus tells two parables and uses two encounters he has with people to teach us about the coming kingdom and also about the kind of heart that will receive that kingdom. And so while I could give an entire sermon on the theology of the kingdom for us sitting here this morning, I just want to say just a couple things about that kingdom. We live, sitting here today, we live in a period called now and not yet. What does that mean? It means that as now we are in the kingdom, as you place your faith in Jesus, as you align your life with him in discipleship, you become part of the kingdom. The kingdom is lived out in your life now. 
But Jesus also teaches of a future day when he will return to earth and will reign as king over all the nations, and that will be the coming kingdom. That future event's going to be sudden and cataclysmic, actually. It's going to rock the entire world system that we know as civilization, and it's going to be on a day just like Jesus says it'll be a day just like the day that Noah entered the ark. Not a cloud in the sky, and boy, did it rain, didn't it? And so we've got to be ready for the kingdom to receive the kingdom, which will be inherited by the pure in heart. And that's the theme, really, of Jesus' teaching in Luke chapter 18. What does a prepared and purified heart look like in our daily experience? Well, let's jump into the scripture with verse 1 and take a look at this and see what Jesus taught along the road to Jerusalem. Verse 1. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. He said, or there was a widow, excuse me, and there was a widow in the city who kept coming to him saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterwards, he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not wear me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Actually, it would mean, will he find faith like this on the earth when he returns? Prayer is a barometer of our faith, isn't it? You can really, you can really kind of see where you're standing with the Lord and your walk with the Lord, the health of your walk with the Lord through your prayers. It, it really speaks volumes about the state of our heart. If we believe Christ is God and believe that we have been called as sons of daughters of His, of the Most High, who are going to inherit the earth, we would be people who are constant in our prayers. And I think about the fact that one of the most unnatural things in the world is to not pray. Survey after survey of Americans, believers and unbelievers, continually reveal that prayer is a natural thing, that, that most people admit to praying at least once or more times a week. It is unnatural not to pray. But we receive an admonition here, don't we, from Jesus. He says, let us pray and not lose heart. What does that mean? To lose heart is to throw the towel in. It's to give up God. It's to give up on God and is to abandon all hope. Kind of a scary thing, isn't it? But you know, think about this. One of the scariest things in the world that you can do is to pray, because prayer to really honestly be real, there has to be hope. You don't pray without hope. You never pray without hoping something's going to come to pass or come your way or is going to result in something. We don't pray for nothing. We hope, don't we? 
But that's a very risky thing when you think about it because you can be disappointed if you hope. You really can be disappointed. Disappointment can cause us to lose heart in a very big way. God hears and answers all of our prayers, but sometimes he says no for reasons that we can't understand. Or the answer is yes, but wait. Or the answer is, I'll do it, but you're not going to like it. You know, there's many reasons, but God answers all of our prayers. But let me ask you something. Have you ever come to a place where you have lost your heart? Where you've been, you know, you've been disappointed enough by God in a way that you have lost your heart. It's an interesting thing because I know that uh, a few times in my, my walk with the Lord, there have been times where I found it very difficult to pray because I did, I did lose heart. I was disappointed with God, but that was because I hoped, because I'd placed my faith in God, and what I was hoping for had not come about, had not, had not happened. You know, last week I was reading, I was actually finishing a book about the Lewis and Clark expedition, and uh, I don't know if, how much you know about that, but they were, Lewis and Clark, of course, are, you know, some pretty important figures in Pacific Northwest history. They were sent out by President Jefferson in 1804, and they had a, a two-year, almost three-year journey across the United States. They were the first people to explore the continent of North America and make it all the way to the Pacific Ocean. And one of the things that I was, thought was fascinating was because I, I, I thought they were just out there to explore, but, and they, they were, but one of the things that they came out, when, when they came out west, that they were looking for was something called the Northwest Passage. Have you ever heard of the Northwest Passage? It, is a, it was an expectation because they knew, they knew about the Columbia River. The Columbia River had been discovered a couple hundred years before uh, Thomas Jefferson. So they knew about the Columbia River, and they knew it was this gigantic river. And they knew about, on the east side, they knew about the Mississippi and the Missouri River, these, these big waterways. And there was an idea, and not an implausible idea, that somewhere, maybe, these rivers were close enough or had the same water source. And so when they were hiking out and, and walking and they crossed the Continental Divide and they get up and they look, they were looking to see this gigantic river that they could then build rafts on and float out to the Pacific Ocean, hopefully catch a ride with a trader ship and be hauled back to Washington, D.C. They get up there after hiking more than 1,500 miles, by the way, on foot, some of it on horseback, but mostly on foot, or trudging up the Missouri River in a boat against the current. Think about that. Uh, they, they get up there, and they, they ascend the Continental Divide, and they look out before them, and they're looking west, and what do they see? Mountain range after blasted mountain range, as far as you could see, a wall an insurmountable wall blocking their passage to the Pacific Ocean. No river, no easy way to get out there. It was not what they were, that was not what they were hoping to see. Who would have faulted them for giving up when you're faced with an insurmountable obstacle like mountain range after dangerous mountain range. 
raising up, snow, ice, all sorts of dangers, unknown territory. We probably would have never faulted them for turning back and saying, well, I don't think it's going to work out. But they plowed on ahead, didn't they? They, they, moved, they moved out there. We know, we know from their diaries, because they kept very rigorous diaries of you know, what their thoughts were and everything, we know that they moved ahead. They didn't see what they expected to see, but they were willing to explore what was, what was real, what was in their present experience. And they moved on with actually joyful expectation, even though things were not as expected. They had joyful expectation and were willing to explore. And I would ask you this morning, how many things in your life have turned out exactly as you'd hoped for and planned? Have you found everything to be to your liking? Probably not. Has everything worked out for the good in your life? Probably so. Probably so. Even, even though sometimes the things that happen, we don't fully understand what their purpose was. We know that in good time, as Christians, we know Romans 8.28, all things work to the good for those in Christ Jesus. If I could turn this back now to what Jesus was saying, the Lord's teaching, he says, if the helpless widow can get justice from an uncaring judge just because of sheer persistence, how much more is a loving God, a God who loves you, put yourself in that picture, a God who loves you is eager to bless and to answer your prayers, especially those who are relentless in their prayers. We have ample reason to hope because we belong to the living God. But you know, we have to sometimes accept life as it comes our way, but we don't abandon hope. We live in a kingdom, and we live in a kingdom that is emerging in a broken and sinful world. And my friends, God is interacting with this world. He is interacting with sinners like me and like you. I'm kind of an advanced sinner now at this stage in my career. Uh, you know, I've gotten really good at repentance, though. I'm, I'm getting better at that as well. But still, God is working on me, and I know He's working on you as well. And God's pouring forth His grace. But we would be well served to live our lives if we were to never abandon hope, is to have that life of being an explorer, being willing to take a look at what is and not mourn what we hoped would be. We hope we dream, we pray, we serve in a broken world, and we don't require and we don't postpone joy until all goes according to our expectations. Jesus wants to find in me and find in you a heart that is faithfully patient, faithfully prayerful, and expected in hope. And so that's the first thought. Jesus says, when I come back, will I find faith like this on the earth? talking about a relentless hope, a relentless faith, patient and prayerful. Let's move on in our text. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, 
God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even like this tax collector over there. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Notice how Jesus kind of cuts the dialogue off right there. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says to us, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Great choice in character development by Jesus, don't you think here? A person uniformly respected contrasted with a person uniformly despised. See, we have a different perspective on the Pharisees because we have, the, we have, of course, the long tradition of the Gospels in which we can see that Jesus regularly criticized them and we realize that they were really off base in a lot of their things. But in the time when this parable was told, the Pharisees were extremely respected they were the people that you wanted to have in your church. They were the people you wanted to know and hang around. Even if you may not want to actually be one of them, you at least respected them. Whereas the tax collector, well, not much changed. Uh, we still feel the same about tax collectors, don't we, as, as uh, <clears throat> we always have. Uh, it's funny because I... Um, I, I work uh, doing taxes during tax season. A lot of you don't know that because that was something I picked up long after I left here. It uh, was my COVID project was to get my tax license uh, in Oregon. And it's really funny too because, you know, uh, people talk about, oh, you know, we're just taxed to death in this country. Uh, and, and I know that there's reason to complain, trust me. But it's so funny because what what the government predicts based on the gross national product in the economy, there's like $500 billion difference in what should be coming in versus uh, what actually does come in. And that's not because of spending. That's because people tend to want to fudge a little bit here and fudge a little bit there on their taxes. So there's a little bit of the corruptness sometimes going both ways. Not that not that I know what you guys have done when you file your taxes or anything, but it is quite an interesting thing to read about here. But you know, self-righteousness and contempt for others does go hand in hand, doesn't it? That's why Jesus gives us the very strong warning about not judging one another. And in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, judge not lest you be judged. And he, he urges such great caution here. He says, for by the measure you judge, it will be measured back to you. And he says, get the log out of your own eye before pulling out the splinter in your neighbor's eye. It's a very strong warning for spending a lot of time dwelling upon the sins of our, our brothers and sisters and not looking at our own. Why should we do that? Because, because of the fact that we naturally focus on our own strengths and kind of have a tendency to forget a little bit about our weaknesses. And we tend to focus on the other person's weaknesses and forget about the strengths that they have as well. I'll take that a step further because I know how my mind works, and I'll bet it's not too far off of yours either. And that is that I have a tendency to 
focus on the actions of other people, but I give myself a personal pass on my intentions. You see the difference? My intention is, is not the same thing as living up to it. So I'll, I'll be hard on you, and I will, I will critique your actions, but I will consider myself a fairly decent person because I have good intentions. I won't look at my own actions. It's a, it's a, bit, of a, a bit of an odd measurement there. But you know, God's, God's measurement of you is not based on what other people think about you. It's also, God's measure of you is not based on what you think about yourself. God's measure is based on what He thinks of you and what you think of Him. God thinks of you as a person who is under the penalty of sin and who needs to be forgiven by virtue of His anointed and appointed Savior, Jesus. It doesn't matter how important or unimportant you are. It doesn't matter whether you're born into a great family. It doesn't matter if you came from a notorious family. Whether you came from a religious or non-religious home or school or lineage, you all are a one to God. And you're known as you really are, beyond your intentions, beyond your self-illusions. The real you, the broken you, the person who is valuable and beloved, but defaced. The tax collector thought rightly about God too. He knew that he was a corrupt sinner, but God in his rich mercy specializes in healing sinners and saving them. Psalm 51, 17 says, the sacrifices of God, the true sacrifices of God, not the not the, the, you know, the religious ceremony, but the true sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart and that God will not despise those. If we come to him in our brokenness, if we come to him in our weakness, he does not despise us. He forgives us. He loves us. But he will despise a heart that is self-righteous and prideful. And so a heart as well, as we think about the state of our heart, a heart that is humbled with the knowledge of one's own sin and the greatness of God's grace is one that is humble and it is healed. Prayerful and patient, humble and healed. That's what Jesus wants to find in our hearts, humility, and as we're humbled, we're healed. But let me move it on. Move it down the road here still. We come to verse 15. Now they were bringing even infants to him, Jesus, that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for such belongs to the kingdom of God. And truly I say to you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. We mustn't fault the disciples too much for wanting to time manage Jesus. After all, he was a man with a busy schedule, a man in demand. There were crowds to instruct. There were healings to perform. There were miracles that needed to be worked. And he couldn't use his valuable time blessing babies. After all... They are not key people and definitely not contributors to the greater cause. Babies are helpless. 
Babies are totally dependent, and though they have potential, they're not really considered productive members of society, are they? So why would Jesus care about spending time with children and actually emphasize their importance? For the same reason that Jesus always made time for the people who were infirm, he made time for people who were diseased, he made time for people who were demonically possessed. When was the last time you penciled in on your calendar time to spend with demonically possessed people? He made time for those, he made time for those folks. He made time for people who were socially and economically marginalized. All people matter and are of consequence to God, even if their value cannot be measured by what they contribute to society. Why are kids important? Well, Jesus says he, he, says he wants us to have the heart of a child. And that's what the teaching moment was all about. We're not called to be infantile. That's not, that's not actually uh, what he's calling us to. And we're not called to be childish. We're called to be childlike. Children are by nature trusting. Children believe that they're loved, sometimes even contrary to all evidence. Children uh, also believe that life is something that is given to you. It's not earned, it's given to you as a gift. I mean, when you were growing up and sitting around the kitchen table at dinner time, you know, did you thank your parents for blessing you with a free meal today? Did you, you know, did you send thank you notes for yet another month where uh, you got to live in the house rent free? You didn't do that, did you? I think about when I was a kid, uh, when I was a kid growing up, and, and I know I know many of you understand this, that vacations, the thought of ever getting on a jet and flying anywhere was like, that was, you know, that was like, you might as well go to the moon, right? Uh, jet travel was so expensive. And so anytime we went on a vacation, uh, you know, we'd load up the Plymouth Belvedere with the completely un-aerodynamic roof rack. Remember when those things first came out, they were like big boxes that would, you know, literally just be this wall for bugs to hit and, you know, the cars shaking and going down the road. And, and I remember we went to exotic and faraway places like Montana, you know, <laughs> Mount Lassen, you know, Susanville, California. I think we went to Reno one time even, a very exotic place. But you know, as I was thinking about that, you know what? You know what I never did on any of those family vacations? I never worried whether my parents knew where they were going. I never did. I never worried that maybe there was not going to be a place for us to sleep that night or there wasn't going to be provision for my hunger. I just trusted because I belonged to my parents and my parents were... They were, they were that wall in front of me, and they were caring for me. It was just trust for no other reason than you belonged. I belong, and I trust, and I know that my parents are looking out for me. And that's, frankly, what God wants us to do as well. Having a childlike trust is basically the exact opposite of what we call being an adult right? 
because of the fact adults, what are we prone to? We're prone to not trusting. We're prone that we don't believe that we're lovable. And we definitely believe that you need to earn your keep in this life. We're completely different than that. But from cover to cover, the Bible teaches that God is our Father and that He cares for us as a Father and wants us to hold Him in our hearts as His Father. I was thinking, I heard, I heard the other day, um, I, was on, I think I was listening to the radio, I, no, it was a podcast, and somebody was talking about the, you know, the most revolutionary words Jesus ever uttered was when he, when he taught the Lord's Prayer in the Sermon on the Mount, where he said, Our Father. And, they, and I thought, wow, that's true. And, and then I started digging up in the Bible about where uh, the fatherhood of God begins. And that goes all the way through the Bible. That's not something Jesus revealed at all. It's something that God revealed all along the way. He said, I am your father. I want to be a father to you. And that goes all the way back to Adam and Eve, but it goes to Israel and goes all the way through the prophets and to Jesus and to us today, that God wants us to see him as our father. And if he is your God, he is your father. And if he's your father, then you are his child. And you are loved and you are cared for. The kingdom of God is entered by those whose hearts before God are like a children's, beloved and believing, not worried, not questioning, just trusting. And then we end here with the rich young ruler. Let me read this to you. And the ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your mother and father. And he said, Well, all these I've kept from my youth. And when Jesus heard this, walked right into the trap, of course. When Jesus heard this, he said, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And wouldn't this be an awesome place for me to give this, furnish this really great archaeological detail about how in Jerusalem there used to be this gate that looked like a needle and it was hard to get a camel through. Have you heard that one? How many people have heard that one? Where's the evidence for that? I think Jesus actually meant they had needles. They did leather work. I think it's the real thing. It's more difficult than cramming a camel you know, unless it's a cigarette camel, it, 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 a full-size camel, uh, you know, to get it through the eye, to get it through the eye of a needle. There. The question this person asked of Jesus is the correct one. How would you answer this question? Well, if you were to answer it, it it's it's not about what you do for God so much as what God has done for you. Hundred percent right on that. 
your answer would be it's not about keeping holy rules, not keeping the rule book, keeping the list there, so much as what God has done for you, well, then uh, you're 100% right on that proposition. So why does Jesus give this guy this kind of answer? Because the call to eternal life, the call to salvation, is a compound proposition. Jesus is not, you guys, have you guys had, I had this picture of Jesus, maybe you know which one I'm talking about, that he, he kind of has tan skin and long hair. Uh, friends of mine call that surfer Jesus. And I always, I always think about that. I look at that and I go, you know, he does kind of look like a surfer there in that picture. If you know which one I'm talking about, it's a world famous picture. But you know, Jesus is, is not a lifeguard. Okay, salvation is a rescue for sure. And Jesus, though, is not a divine lifeguard whose work is complete when he's dragged you out of the drink and called 911 for you. His salvation of you, his rescue of you goes deep. I have that effect. I totally understand. <laughs> I totally understand that. You're not just saved from something. The proposition is from Jesus, from God, from the Holy Spirit. Not saved just from something, you are saved for something. You're not just saved so you don't go to hell and burn in eternity, which is actually, you know, we don't like to talk about that. It's kind of, you know, unsavory to think about that, but that is what the Bible teaches. If you die without Christ in your heart, is that you will find eternal separation from God. Not one of our more popular doctrines, and yet it is truth. But, you know, salvation goes way beyond just saving you from something. You are being saved for something. You're saved to become an apprentice of Jesus. You're saved to give your full attention and your best efforts to learning from him that you might become a new creation a new kind of human being, not just a corrected person who is a corruption after the line of Adam, but actually a new kind of human being directed by the Holy Spirit, a new kind of human being that actually is forgiven and released from shame and guilt in your life because of Christ's salvation that he offers you. So, why did Jesus tell the man to sell all of his assets and give funds to the poor? Because he knew what? What Kelly was talking about. He knew about the connection between the heart and the wallet. And he knew that the rich young ruler could not fully give his heart with the distraction that the wealth had in his life. And you know, the price of admission into the kingdom and eternal life is an undivided heart. And Jesus is not afraid to ask you or ask me to divest ourselves of any good thing that divides our heart from him. It could be your money. It could be many other things. It could be good things, but that are, they are a distraction from your discipleship. You know, I don't know too many truly uh, active and engaged Christians that don't regularly ponder that question in their own life. And I imagine if you're very serious about your disciple of Jesus, discipleship of Jesus, you probably actually do ask yourself that same question. You know, Lord, do you want me to put this aside that I can follow after you more closely? That's a, that's a pretty regular question. 
But if you haven't given any thought about that, I would just say, hey, don't assume that adding more good things to your life is an unqualified good and something that we should always do. If our garages, if our attics, if our side yards, if our backyards, if our outbuildings, our storage units could all talk today, what would they say? If they could speak, what would they say? Why? Why? <laughs> Not all and more and better and fill in the blank is always an unqualified good, especially if it does come in the way with Jesus. You know, it's fascinating to me and what should be of interest to everyone here in this room. And I'm, I'm, not, being, I'm not a paid sponsor for generosity of the church here, uh, but be that as it may, uh, you know, our generosity on earth in some way does have purchase in heaven. Jesus says, you know, sell all you have, give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Which by implication would mean that all these things that we you know, we call it generosity or we call it giving or we call free will offerings or tithes is not really giving up one gall darn thing. It's merely a reallocation of assets for future use. And the thing that would just blow my mind, probably blow your mind as well, would be, uh, you know, what's the yield on that, man? Uh, you know, that's got to be pretty breathtaking yield. Uh, I thought it was doing good this year, you know, at 19%, but uh, I'm sure in heaven it's even doing better. But what is, you know, what is the message for our hearts here? Once again, seek to be a devoted and divested follower of Christ wherever possible. So let me conclude by sharing a few thoughts here with us. First of all, Luke 18 is a picture painted with a lot of contrasts. You have a judge who grudgingly honors persistence out of self-concern and a God who eagerly honors our persistent prayers for those he loves. You have a religious man who exalts himself before God and holds contempt for those of a non-religious man who uh, exalts God. You have children with the keys to the kingdom and nothing to offer, and you have a rich man with everything to offer, but you have no keys to the kingdom. Contrast allows us to focus. It allows us to differentiate here. And so here's a question I want you and the Holy Spirit to work on today, tonight, this week. Think about whose heart does your heart most closely resemble? Honest thinking here, be honest with yourself, but work on this with the Holy Spirit. What resonated with you? When I was sharing these thoughts, what came to your mind? As I was sharing what kind of heart I had, the kind of heart that God is looking for, that Christ is looking for, for his return of the kingdom. If I, if I shared with those, what resonated with you? Then let me ask you another question. Out of the things I shared today, what did you resist? What, what did you say, man, I wish you'd shut up right now, please. 
What did you, what, what were you resisting? Because oftentimes the things we resist are the things that we need to talk about to God the most often in our lives. We need to, we need to bring our faults before God, our weaknesses before God. We need to talk to God often, regularly and often about these things, asking for him to, to change our hearts and change our mind. Second of all, I want to zero in on being devoted and divested. You know, uh, since the year 2010, which is, man, it's in the rearview mirror now. But you know, since that time, the evangelical church in America has actually been in decline. Since that time, statistically, it's been in decline. I'm not talking about the liberal church. Uh, I'm not talking about the, you know, the rainbow vestment churches, uh, loosey-goosey doctrine on everything. I'm talking about good, hardcore, Bible-believing evangelical communities, Christian communities. They have been in decline for that long. Many of us in in my shoes and in my my vocation and everything kind of always grew up with the idea that a full church is a healthy church. And, of course, empty churches don't generally reveal any health, so there is some correlation there. But, you know, uh, what's the cause of that? I think probably one of the biggest causes of that was really a lack of engagement by Christians in their faith. Church attendance certainly uh, is not, uh, not an uh, only measure. It's certainly a valuable measure in our engagement, and you don't become more engaged by not coming to church. But there's more to that, okay? Um, I think about the fact that during COVID, when we had all the time in the world do you know more Bibles were purchased in, uh, during COVID than at any time? The American Bible Society uh, said it was the highest level of people purchasing Bibles for their homes. And yet by every measurement, not only did nobody read them, but actually Bible reading, weekly Bible reading declined by 7% during the pandemic. Apparently, even though we had even more time than ever before, we didn't find any time to read the Scripture. I think that's a symptom of a lack of engagement. Quite, fr- quite frankly, I think attendance in generally has been uh, undermined by distraction in a big way. Usually good things, you know, I don't come to church this weekend. Uh, usually good things, but in the end I want to ask you how important are they really are they more important than Jesus? Are they equal to Jesus? That's scary to say something's equal. To, are they equal to Jesus? Do they share custody with Jesus every other weekend? Um, yeah. Yeah. I want to challenge you to engage in your discipleship with Jesus. I want you to come to church. Yeah, and I see you're here today. Praise God. I want all of you and more next week, okay? Uh, you, you know, I want to challenge you to, to be engaged in, in your walk with the Lord, to be divested and devoted to the Lord. I was glad to hear uh, starting uh, the community groups again, and I, I really want to encourage you to get involved in a community group here. I didn't even know we were talking or emphasizing them, but I want to, I want to encourage you that. I know a couple of years ago during covid 
I was in, got engaged with a group of, of, of men and we had a, a weekly prayer and Bible study together. And you know, I don't even live in the area anymore. We started this thing on Zoom chat and then eventually were able to meet in person during the pandemic. But you know, those brothers have been literally a lifeline in my life. That's where the, that's where the deeper Christian life is led. Is, is when we have that real fellowship and we share in the nitty-gritty of each other's lives. Very important, very important aspect in that. And so my first question I asked you, you know, is there anything you're resisting? Is there anything that maybe needs to be removed? i move back to this refiner's fire. Is there anything that needs to be added into your life to strengthen the metal of your heart? to strengthen your walk with Jesus, to make you a prepared vessel to serve him. Once again, something that we should be talking to God about and talking often. And finally, I want to talk to anyone here today that doesn't know the Lord as your Savior. Perhaps you're visiting, you got drugged here by a friend or family member. Uh, maybe you're looking for something that you think's been missing in your life and you're checking out things. You know, Jesus cares for you so much that he made a way for you to come to God by dying on the cross. He became that one thing. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus became that one thing to make a way. And I want to encourage you to believe and follow him. Have contempt for your own sin. Have contempt for your own life and exalt God. When we exalt God, when we lift God up and have contempt for ourselves by comparison, we will be exalted in that because we will be lifted up because we belong to God and we become one of his children. It's an amazing thing and it changes everything. And I can tell you that because I, 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 did, I, I made that decision 46 years ago. And no, yeah, 46 years ago. Anyway... If you haven't done that, open your heart, believe in Jesus, and trust in him, and he will exalt and lift you up in your life. And I want to pray for all of us as we sit here in our seats and close together. Shall we bow our heads? Heavenly Father, and what a great privilege and blessing uh, it is to call you, Father, and to pray. I ask for my brothers and my sisters, for myself, that you'd help us to be, <clears throat> help us to be pliable, to be able to be moved and be in tune with the Holy Spirit in our lives, that we would be your vessels of service, but also your vessels of honor. I pray for those here today that might be searching and seeking after you, and I pray, Lord, that um, you might even take their hearts in your hands, God, today, and help them to release their hearts to you. And Father, I pray for those of us who have things that we know, man, we know that you have put your finger on them, and you have been talking to us about them, and we have been resistant towards you. And I pray, Father, that you would help this week, today, this hour, this time, help us to put those things on the altar and to seek your face and to give our entire lives over to you. 
We pray all these things in the name of your Savior. Amen.